0: Good evening, happy Good Friday to you. I want to take just a, a minute here and kind of set what the temperature is, if you will, for the evening. I think in years past when we've come together on Good Friday, it's, it's an appropriately somber sort of tone. I mean, we're thinking about the greatest uh, act of evil of all time that is sinless totally righteous Savior would be sent to the cross. And we're reflecting upon that. And as people who know and love Jesus, we want to be, uh, you know, appropriately, emotionally, you know, dialed into that. And that's great. But we're also gathering together to reflect on what is a triumph at the cross. And this morning... Our psalm reading in the Lent devotional, if you've been following along with that, was from Psalm chapter 98, and I wish I could say that I had had the foresight to put that one specifically on Good Friday, but God was providential more so than I am smart. And so it says this, the start of Psalm 98, Sing a new song to the Lord, for he has performed wonders. His right hand and holy arm have won victory. The Lord has made victory known. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen our God's victory. Now the psalmist wrote that, those are the first three verses of Psalm 98, in response to something that happened historically in the life of Israel. And how much of an idea the psalmist had at that time that what he was writing here would be ultimately fulfilled by a man on the cross, I have no idea. But God knew. And when the psalmist wrote those words, sing a new song to the Lord, for he has performed wonders, God had eternally in mind the wonder of the cross. And so we gather together to sing a new song Verse 4, let the whole earth shout to the Lord, be jubilant, shout for joy. So we gather together on Good Friday, appropriately somber in our reflection, but also appropriately celebratory because the Lord has won victory in the sight of the nations, and it is for all people. And so while we're somber, let's also color that a little bit with a spirit of celebration. Amen? Amen. This evening, our aim is going to be to reflect on an event the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, through the lens of a text. And that text is going to come right out of the flow of Luke that we've been in over the last few months. If you're here on Sunday, or if you watched online or you caught the podcast later, you'll know we're in the middle of Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 is Luke recording one sermon of... That Jesus gave and what Jesus is doing is he's delineating how will you know who my followers are versus who is not how will you know who my people are versus who the people of the world are and we're going to continue to see that in verses 27 to 42 tonight and what we have before us is a moral teaching of Jesus that points so clearly to the cross that we could just read it and then bring the worship team back up and just move right back in to worshiping but if you know me I'm more verbose than that, so I've got some things to say. I made a statement on Sunday that I want to reiterate this evening as we jump into Luke chapter 6. And that statement is true of all of Jesus' teachings, but I wanted to use it on Sunday so that we could really get it in focus this evening, and that was this, that the moral teachings of Jesus and all of the moral teachings and commandments of the Bible are exemplified in the life of of Jesus. They're fulfilled at the crucifixion of Jesus. They're empowered by the Holy Spirit following the resurrection of Jesus, and they will be completed perfectly in us at our glorification in the presence of Jesus. Exemplified in his life, fulfilled in his crucifixion, empowered by his spirit, completed in us at his glorification. If you've got a Bible and you want to read along with me, I'm going to be in Luke 6 verses 27 to 42. If you don't have a Bible, you can just listen. Jesus says this, But I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. If anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks you. And from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. Just as you want others to do for you, do the same for them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do what is good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your father also is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you, a good measure. pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can the blind guide the blind? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take, the splinter that is, take out the splinter that is in your eye when you yourselves don't see the beam of wood in your eye? Hypocrites, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Those are the words of Jesus given to a crowd of disciples and others who have come to hear him. And we do a disservice to the moral teachings and the commands of Jesus. We do a disservice to the beauty of the gospel. We do a disservice to the power of the truth that has granted us salvation when we take those kinds of teachings and we just jump straight into the applications. We turn the gospel into a legalistic set of rules when we take a passing glance at the cross and then live as though the moral commands of Scripture are the means by which we are actually going to be saved. We negate the transformative power of the cross when we make it seem as though the answer to life is just to dig a little deeper inside of ourselves, try a little bit harder, be a little bit better, do a little bit differently. To do these things is to live as if Jesus died to save us and then said, now, every single day, live as though you're in debt to me and then maybe I will save you. So hear the words of Jesus again. And think about the life of Jesus. Think about the death of Jesus. Think about what the Holy Spirit does within the people of Jesus by the resurrection of Jesus. Think about what it's going to be like to stand in glory with Jesus. I say this to you who listen. Love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. We're going to start by looking at the life of Jesus, and we could do this from a number of different places throughout any one of the four Gospels, but it's Good Friday, and I want us to look and think specifically about the end of Jesus's life, and so I'm going to read to you a lengthy portion of the end of Luke. I'm going to start in the middle of chapter 22, and I'm going to read to the middle of chapter 23. That's where Luke recounts the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion of Jesus, and rather than me summarizing or paraphrasing i'm just going to read the whole thing because one word from the lips of god is worth thousands from mine here's what we're told jesus was out praying in the garden his a couple of his disciples were there they were falling asleep and we're told this while he was still speaking suddenly a mob came and one of the 12 named judas was leading them he came near jesus to kiss him but jesus said to him judas are you betraying the son of man with a kiss When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, temple police, and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. They seized him led him away and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Man, I'm not, Peter said. About an hour later, Another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were holding Jesus started mocking him and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, prophesy, who was it that hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things to him. When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before their Sanhedrin. And they said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth? Then their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you say so. I'm in 23, actually. Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting, he stirs up the people, teaching them throughout all Judea from Galilee, where he started even to here. When Pilate heard this, he asked the man if he was a Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus didn't answer him. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. When Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, or then Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothes, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Look at Jesus, bringing people together. Previously, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, you've brought me this man as one who misleads the people. But in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. Then they all cried out together, take this man away, release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The third time he said to them, why, what has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified and their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and released the one they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. But he handed Jesus over to their will. As they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other criminals, or two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered rebuking him. Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was about noon. And darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. Maybe you caught some of it. Maybe you didn't. But there were multiple points in there where the life of Jesus points us directly back to his teaching about loving our enemies. He exemplifies it perfectly. His clothes are divided up. He doesn't ask for them back. He's mocked. He doesn't return it but there's one point in particular that i want us to see and i'm going to let judas smith say it because he does so better than i possibly could watch this
1: we see the story of jesus going to the cross and everything seems to kind of be hand in hand and then there's This one character that seems to interrupt the narrative, his name's Barabbas. We don't even know much about him except that he's a murderer, a leader of an insurrection, a rebel. And why he's even mentioned, sometimes I'm not so sure. It's like, what? Let's, this is about Jesus going to the cross. So in this moment, Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hand. I know the Jews have a tradition that on a holy day, I will release one of the prisoners on death row. Pilate stands on this audacious stage, who now presents Jesus, son of the living God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy, this has is, this is gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner, a man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a rebellion. He murders people. He's a bad man. He's a thug and he's a crook. He deserves the chains and he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus? What has he done but heal, restore, deliver, set free, Open blind eyes, open deaf ears. Heal the lame and the leper. What what has Jesus done? Who do you want? We, We want Barabbas. Yeah. Give us Barabbas.
0: There's Jesus, Son of God, with all the power of a sovereign and omnipotent God, letting Barabbas walk off the platform, free from his chains, as he stares at a long walk to the top of a hill outside of Jerusalem with a cross strapped to his back. So we hear Jesus say, Love your enemies. You look at the life of Jesus and you ask yourself a question. Well, what does it look like to perfectly exemplify loving your enemies? And the answer, at the very least, is that it looks costly, difficult, humble, quiet, content. It looks dispositionally different than the thrust of our world, which celebrates, makes movies about, vengeance, retribution revenge. Barabbas did not do anything to Jesus personally, not that we know of, at least. But in this moment, on the surface, he and the Pharisees that stirred up the crowd have just taken everything from Jesus. And yet Jesus knows that there's more to life than life that there's more happening than what appears to be taking place on the surface. And so Jesus loves that enemy. The enemy whose celebrated freedom has signed and sealed the certificate for Jesus's gruesome and unwarranted death. In Judah Smith's words, the father is about to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he can treat Barabbas like Jesus. And Jesus was content To let it happen, he exemplifies in life what he commands of his people. But the beauty of this reality is not simply that Jesus lived it out. The beauty of this reality is that his death is its ultimate fulfillment. Yes, Jesus loved his enemies, he loved the Pharisees even when he was rough with them. He brought Judas close enough that Judas could betray him with a kiss. He loved Peter when Peter denied him. He loved Herod and Pilate and the Sanhedrin when they condemned him. He loved the Roman guards who flogged him, who made the king of the Jews sign for his cross, who gambled over his clothes, who drove the nails into his hands and feet. Jesus loved every person whose sin led to his death and he loved them so much he was willing to give his life, even for them. Jesus loves his enemies. And his death is the most beautiful picture of that love. His death is the ultimate fulfillment of his call for his people to love their enemies. His death has provided the blood necessary to move us from the enemies of God to the friends of God. The ultimate fulfillment of this passage makes us children of God, co-heirs with Jesus, carriers of the Holy Spirit. And if you notice in the last two sentences, I've switched the verbiage from someone else's name to us. That's because if you're saved, the true beauty of Jesus' call to love your enemies, the perfect example of that in his life and its ultimate fulfillment in his death on the cross is the exact thing that was necessary to move you from enemy of God to friend of God. We become self-righteous when we think that the enemies of God are definitely people other than ourselves. What is sin? Sin is a personal affront to, a personal attack upon the glory of God that sets you eternally at odds with him. Sin is the thing that takes you and makes you an enemy eternally worthy of infinite judgment. And what did Jesus do? The eternally loved, infinitely innocent one said, I will take the infinite punishment on their behalf that they might become the eternally loved. He was willing to look at you, enemy of God, and love you to the point that you're now friend of God. Colossians 121 says it this way, once you were alienated, hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. and He rescued you from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. That is what Good Friday is all about. In John's gospel, as he's leading into the account of Jesus' death, he says this, John 13, verse 1, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What Jesus does on the cross on Good Friday is loves his enemies to the end. That end was the cross, but that end was also his enemies becoming the friends of God. Who is God gracious to? Jesus told us in Luke chapter six, Verse 35, he is gracious to the ungrateful and the evil. Who is God merciful toward? He's merciful toward those who need mercy. And the uncomfortable truth is that those who have been saved by God's grace through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we were the ungrateful and the evil. We are the people who need mercy. It's easy to think of Barabbas. It's easy to think of Judas. It's easy to think of the Pharisees. It's easy to think of sneering guards and chanting crowds, passive onlookers at the cross. It's easy to point at people today who openly, proudly live as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's harder, more uncomfortable to remind ourselves that we were no different, and that is the call of Good Friday, to look at the cross and to say, It was my sin that held him there. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It's uncomfortable to acknowledge that left to our own flesh, we would be just as any enemy of Christ is. It's uncomfortable to live in a state of continual gratitude over the reality that Christ's fulfillment of loving his enemies was for me. It's uncomfortable to take Judas Smith's words and substitute the names. To remind ourselves that the Father had to treat Jesus like Tim Fritzen. So that he might treat Tim Fritzen like Jesus. And that is the beauty of the cross. At his crucifixion, who is Jesus loving to the end? He's loving his people who were once his enemies, who will be brought near to him because his crucifixion provides the ultimate fulfillment to his command that his people ought to love their enemies. So on Good Friday, we stopped to reflect on the reality that when Jesus said, love your enemies, he also said, come and see what that looks like. And he lived it. And then on the cross, he fulfilled it. Yes, Jesus loves those who love him, but what's remarkable is that he loved those people who now love him while they were yet enemies. And he loved us to the very end. What about the second portion of this? You see Jesus and what it looks like to love your enemies. What about the whole portion about not judging, not condemning, forgiving? The second portion of this is all about the inherent human tendency to convince ourselves that actually we deserved Jesus' death. It's someone else who doesn't. Jesus is familiar with our bent toward creating a standard and then using it to see how we stack up ahead of the people around us. That was what his confrontations with the Pharisees were all about. He's familiar with the fact that we tend to pick the standards of measurement that paint us most favorably. And what does Jesus say in the middle of this passage? Can the blind guide the blind? For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He says, you go ahead and pick your standard and your measure of judgment and understand that you're in trouble. Whatever standard you set for people, you will not be able to live up to. And whereas Jesus fulfills perfectly that which he commands, we will never be able to live up to the system of judgment that we build in our hearts and minds, no matter how favorable we make it to ourselves. So you can either make Jesus the standard and cling to him, or you can make something else the standard and inevitably fall short. You can make Jesus the benchmark and therefore allow him to measure up on your behalf and on others' behalf, or you can make your own rules, you can make your own standard and be certain that like Jesus says, Everyone falls in the pit. Which will you have? Jesus on the cross in your place, turning his enemies into co heirs with him? Or you in the judgment seat, leaving everyone hopeless? Put it all together and then push it one step further. Be honest with yourself. Are you going to love the enemy that you've deemed yourself better than? Absolutely not. You will have created the standard of judgment and measurement whereby you're going to come out on top, and that will have given you the precise amount of leash necessary to say, Jesus died for me because I was good enough to die for, and this person better hope he's as merciful as he says he is. And then there's Jesus, the one who could see all of our sin and all of our faults with perfect clarity, no speck or plank in his own eye, the one who was holding a leash long enough to cast accurate, eternal, perfect judgment on all of sinful humanity. And what does he say? Give me the cross. I'll go for them. I hope everybody got a little communion cup when you came in. Go ahead and and grab that, get it out. If you didn't get one, um, what, we can grab some out of the lobby to make sure everybody's got one. On Good Friday, this is a tradition for us. We like to take communion together. And I want to do that a particular way. There's a hymn. How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It's new in hymn years. It was written in 1990. That's old in contemporary worship years. That's very new in hymn years. But the lyrics say this. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory behold the man upon the cross my sin upon his shoulders ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished his dying breath has brought me life I know that it is finished it was our sin my sin your sin the very sins of the very people that would become the people of God that held Jesus in place on that cross, that sent him to that place, that his enemies might become his people, that his people might become his friends, that his friends might be co-heirs with him, and that we might spend eternity in his presence. So when Jesus tells us to love our enemies and he models it with Judas, and he models it with Barabbas, and he models it with the Pharisees, and he models it with the guards, and he goes to the cross and he dies, that it might change eternity for us. And we think, just give me the practicals. Tell me how to do it. Jesus says, look at the cross and I'll show you. And then I'll send my spirit at my resurrection to empower you to live this totally transformed way. Why should we gain from his reward? There's not an answer. The only answer is that we would gain from his reward because he was willing to love his enemies to the end. The life of Jesus exemplifies that teaching and his death fulfills it. His resurrection that we'll celebrate on Sunday and the sending of his spirit is what empowers that within his people. Without that help, we would be completely lost. So part of what the Holy Spirit does is it leads us to deep reflection on the life, death, resurrection, ascension, return, and eternal glory of Jesus. And then that helps us to move toward the very Christ-likeness that the Holy Spirit himself empowers. And so Jesus gives some great concrete steps in here. Do good to those who would do you harm. Bless those who would wish ill upon you. Pray for those who would maybe even carry out that ill. Turn the other cheek to those who would strike or harm you. Give to those who either are never going to be able to repay you or might just outright steal from you and have no interest in repaying you. Be merciful to those who don't deserve it. Be slow to condemn, quick to forgive. I would suggest that tonight is not the right time to flesh out the practicals. Tonight's the night for focusing on the motivation, God's mercy to us and the death of his son. The practical points are wonderful. We should pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us not only to carry them out, but to actually want to carry them out. We should invite Jesus to do that work inside of us, and it is the gospel that provides the necessary juice for any of those actions. I want to read you a letter. What's it look like when that kind of deep reflection on the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and then the power of the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life? What does it look like for the example of Jesus loving his enemies, the death of Jesus fulfilling that love, and the Holy Spirit coming in to create that love in Jesus' people? What does that look like? I wanna read you a letter from a woman named Anita Smith. Her husband, Ronnie Smith, was gunned down in Libya. He graduated from the University of Texas at Austin with a master's in chemistry. After some time in the Austin area, he and his wife and their son moved to Libya. They were there for 18 months and one day while Ronnie was out jogging, he was shot. A week later, his wife penned this letter to the people of Libya. My husband and best friend, Ronnie Smith, loved the Libyan people. For more than a year, Ronnie served as a chemistry teacher in a school in Benghazi, and he would have gladly given more years to Libya if unknown gunmen had not cut his life short on December 5th, 2013. Ronnie and I came to Libya because we saw the suffering of the Libyan people, but we also saw your hope, and we wanted to partner with you to build a better future. Libya was very different from what we had experienced before, but we were excited to learn about Libyan culture. Ronnie grew to love you and your way of life, as did I. Ronnie really was, quote, Libya's best friend. Friends and family from home were concerned about our safety, as were some of you. We talked about this more times than I can count, but we stayed because we believed the Libyan people were worth the risk. Even knowing what I know now, I have no doubt that we would both make the same decision all over again. Ronnie loved you all so much especially his students he loved to joke with you tell stories about you help you with your lives and challenge you to be all that you could be he did his best to live out his faith humbly and respectfully within a community of people with a different faith to his attackers i love you and i forgive you how could i not for jesus taught us to quote love our enemies not to kill them or seek revenge Jesus sacrificed his life out of love for the very people who killed him, as well as for us today. His death and resurrection opened the door for us to walk on the straight path to God in peace and forgiveness. Because of what Jesus did, Ronnie is with Jesus in paradise now. Jesus did not come only to take us to paradise when we die, but also to bring peace and healing on this earth. Ronnie loved you because God loves you. Ronnie loved you because God loved him. Not because Ronnie was so great, but because God is so great. To the Libyan people, I always expected that God would give us a heart to love you, but I never expected you to love us so much. We came to bless you, but you have blessed us much more. Thank you. Thank you for your support and love for Ronnie and our son Hosea and me. Since Ronnie's death, my love for you has increased in ways that I never imagined. I feel closer to you now than ever before. I hear people speaking with hate, anger, and blame over Ronnie's death, but that's not what Ronnie would want. Ronnie would want his death to be an opportunity for us to show one another love and forgiveness because that is what God has shown us. I want all of you, all of the people of Libya, to know that I'm praying for the peace and prosperity of Libya. May Ronnie's blood shed on Libyan soil encourage peace and reconciliation between the Libyan people and God. That kind of love is produced in people who have seen the example of Jesus' life, cherished the gift of Jesus' death, looked dependently to the presence of Jesus' spirit within them, and who long for a day when the model of Jesus will be made complete inside of them. That kind of love starts and ends with Jesus. That kind of love comes not from a heart that judges and condemns the actions of a person, but from one who understands that at the core of even the worst of sinners is a soul that can be saved and redeemed by the powerful work of Jesus on the cross. That kind of forgiveness comes from the heart of a person who knows that they have been forgiven. That kind of grace flows from the heart of someone who has seen the grace of Jesus on the cross, drank of it deeply, and been transformed by its present power. I want us to thank for just a moment about who may surround the throne of God with us for all of eternity. You picture Ronnie Smith there right now. And what if one day when we're all gathered there, Ronnie Smith looks over to his right and there's the gunman? You know what's going to happen in that moment? Ronnie is going to love that enemy fully and completely because the presence of Jesus will have glorified both of them into such a state that there's no sin, there's no brokenness, there's no weeping, there's no sadness, there's just the glory of Jesus and the perfection of his people and the loving of his enemies to the point that members of every tribe, nation, and tongue will have been brought near to him for an infinite number of days. I don't think I have, like, real enemies. Maybe there are people in your own life that you've had relational falling outs with. You've had bosses that you didn't see eye to eye with. Maybe there are people from your past who treated you very harshly, whether it was while you were a child or while you were in high school or while you were in college or when you were a young adult. Maybe there's been a falling out in a previous marriage and someone hurt you very, very badly. Maybe when you think of enemies, you think of those people who our nation's soldiers have gone to battle against, and they died. We killed some of them, or they killed some of us. Or maybe you just think of an enemy, and you think of people who vote differently than you think differently than you talk differently than you look differently than you smell differently than you speak a different language than you do. They're all going to be there. And our prayer should be that they would all be there. Our prayer should be that the love of Jesus Christ, loving his enemies to the very end, would take the very worst of our enemies, make that person a friend of Jesus, and thus for all of eternity we would love our enemies completely and fully for an infinite number of days while we gather and worship around the throne of God. when your heart struggles to figure out what it means to love your enemies, think about the life of Jesus. Look to the death of Jesus. Depend on the Holy Spirit of Jesus inside of you and then look to the glory of Jesus for all of eternity. And there, in all of those places, the gospel will provide the answer for you. On Good Friday, we gather together to look at the cross where Jesus made his eternal, infinite enemies, his eternal, infinite friends, because he loved him to the very end.